Victoria Gray described it as like being in a car accident over and over. With resignation in her voice, she called it pain that makes a grown woman like me scream. The suffering forced her to quit work and spend weeks at a time in the hospital. Doctors there said her condition made her high risk for a life-threatening heart attack or stroke. With her husband often away on National Guard duty, she worried about how her three young children would manage without their mother. Tragically, she wasn't alone in these trials. Her condition is sickle cell anemia, and it afflicts approximately 100,000 Americans and millions more worldwide. The prognosis for those born with sickle cell is poor. Many don't make it past infancy or early childhood. Those who do live, do so with the knowledge that, statistically, they cannot expect to see their 50th birthdays. All because of a mutation in a single letter of DNA. Of Victoria Gray's 3 billion base pairs of DNA, just one letter is different from most of ours. But that one letter mutation compresses her red blood cells into a half moon shape that constricts the flow of oxygen to her organs and tissues. That lack of oxygen is the cause of her torment. Lightning in her chest, she said. In April of 2019, however, Victoria got some hopeful news. She was offered the opportunity to be the first sickle cell anemia patient to be treated in the United States with a gene editing technique known as CRISPR. Doctors proposed to extract cells from her bone marrow, correct the faulty letter of DNA, and re-inject the cells into her bloodstream. Those cells, they hoped, would multiply, eclipse the moon-shaped cells with perfectly round ones, restore the flow of oxygen to her organs and tissues, and relieve her debilitating pain. She jumped at the chance. At Cross Border Solutions, genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast, where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. The procedure was successful, and two years later, Victoria Gray remains miraculously pain-free. Scientists were just as thrilled as Victoria. Suddenly, seemingly overnight, 
the suffering caused by a world of incurable afflictions seemed no longer inevitable. Diseases like sickle cell, Huntington's, and Tay-Sachs appeared immediately treatable. And with a little more time, others would be as well. AIDS, congenital blindness, kidney failure. CRISPR held the promise of consigning these torturous ailments to the history books to take their place alongside now nearly forgotten terrors like polio and smallpox. CRISPR-Cas9 system is a tool for cutting DNA at a specifically targeted location. It's because of CRISPR, a technology that's not even 10 years old and can basically perform surgery on our genes. A few years ago, with my colleague Emmanuel Charpentier, I invented a new technology. Designer mutations, designer gene changes in animals and also in humans. How does CRISPR do it? The first thing to understand is that while the gene editing potential of CRISPR was discovered just a decade ago, it was invented much earlier, approximately 3 billion years earlier, to be not very precise. CRISPR was originally developed by bacteria as a defense mechanism in their long-running war against attacking viruses. Scientists only recently learned that these bacteria were storing snippets of DNA from malicious viruses they had previously battled. Those snippets were retained as a sort of mugshot, a most wanted poster. At the next encounter with a virus, the bacterium would search its database of DNA snippets, and if it found a match, it knew to go on the offensive. The bacterium would send out a particular protein with instructions to incapacitate the virus by cutting up its DNA, like a pair of molecular scissors. After billions of years of battling viruses, this protein, now named CRISPR-Cas9, was found to be highly programmable. Biochemists determined that in the same way this protein could be instructed by bacteria to cut strands of virus DNA, it could be instructed by scientists to make cuts to any DNA, even human DNA. The discovery paved the way to a truly eureka moment. The realization that the complex human genome could be as easily manipulated as a simple bacterium. CRISPR's ability to find and cut particular strands of DNA could be programmed. And it could be instructed to not only cut DNA, but to edit it. Just as you and I use spell check to find and replace typos in documents, Biochemists could use CRISPR to find debilitating DNA mutations and replace them with harmless ones. These programmable proteins are effectively molecular-sized machines. Machines that allow scientists, and perhaps worryingly, even non-scientists, to write a molecular message instructing the Cas9 protein to enter a cell and alter that cell's DNA according to their precise instructions. CRISPR, they realized, is not just a molecular pair of scissors for chopping up viral DNA. It's a nano-sized DNA surgeon capable of the utmost precision.
The consequences of this discovery did not take long to grasp. An ability to easily and precisely manipulate individual cells at the molecular level meant genetic mutations could be corrected, diseases eradicated, viruses incapacitated. With these tiny magical machines and an ever greater understanding of genetics, no goal seems out of reach. Future CRISPR use cases begin with growing healthier foods, eliminating malaria-spreading mosquitoes, and producing environmentally friendly biofuels. With a little imagination, however, the targets quickly escalate into the realm of science fiction. Woolly mammoths may be brought back from extinction to walk the Earth again. Welcome to Jurassic World. But pursuing these loftier goals quickly brings scientists into murky ethical and moral terrain. Relieving patients of the torment of sickle cell anemia is, of course, unobjectionable to anyone. But curing afflictions like sickle cell, while complex and expensive, may require manipulation of just a single gene, sometimes in just a single cell. That gene can be edited with relatively predictable outcomes, with its consequences, both good and bad, limited to just the patient being treated. Some of the more ambitious potential uses of CRISPR, however, require bigger changes. And bigger changes result in less predictable outcomes and more far-reaching consequences. This is going to revolutionize human life. Would the consequences be bad? And they might be. Chinese biophysicist He Zhangqi, working largely in secret, had used CRISPR to knock out a gene called CCR5. This announcement was, of course, that his work had resulted in the birth of twins who had both been subject to genetic engineering. Since news of whose experiments hit the public, various scientists, including Fang Zhang of the Board Institute, have called for similar experiments to be taken. Every time you monkey with the genome, you are taking a chance that something will go wrong. The technique could be misused in horrible ways. To limit those risks, Many scientists have identified a bright red line that, in their views, should never be crossed. Germline edits. These are edits that affect not just a single patient, but entire populations. Not just in the here and now, but potentially forever. Germline edits are changes made within reproductive cells, most pertinently human embryos. Changes made to an embryo aim to take root in every cell in the resulting child's body and are therefore heritable. So a change made to an individual will be passed down to their children, and their children's children, and so on. In this way, a single mutation can spread rapidly throughout a population. This raises a host of thorny issues the same gene that causes some to suffer from sickle cell anemia protects others from malaria. CRISPR may present some interesting ethical questions, but you can't deny that the benefits are nearly incalculable. What is the value of, say, an AIDS vaccine? What if it was inexpensively deliverable in a syringe? 
In sub-Saharan Africa alone, more than two million children suffer from HIV-AIDS. CRISPR gene editing holds the promise of one day inoculating the world against AIDS with a vaccine delivered by syringe in a single shot and to do it cheaply enough to reach the children of sub-Saharan Africa. Chinese scientists injected a lung cancer patient with cells that had been modified with CRISPR. The scientists extracted these cells from the patient's running. But xenotransplantation is risky. For instance, numerous attempts to replace human kidneys with pig kidneys have ended with the immune system attacking It might be worthwhile to invest in the most cutting-edge innovations and businesses. C-R-I-S-P-R is special. To paraphrase Yogi Berra, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. But it seems likely that CRISPR gene editing technology will dramatically change the course of human development. The more relevant question is, for good or ill, or both. The path forward is fraught with risk, and it will take the collective genius of an ethical scientific community to ensure the outcome is a good one. But the risks are worth taking. Just ask Victoria Gray. Welcome to Genius Beat Sphere. I'm your host, Lori Dillon, and we're here with CRISPR expert Kevin Davies, author of Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing, a fascinating book about CRISPR and the infinite possibilities of genome editing. Welcome, Kevin, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me. The subtitle of your most recent book is The CRISPR Revolution, but gene therapy and genetic engineering date back at least decades. What makes CRISPR revolutionary? It's, I guess, a couple of things. One is this gene editing technology is so relatively straightforward to use. It has literally swept the world. There are researchers in almost every country deploying CRISPR and doing really exciting experiments with this tool. It doesn't require huge investments of fancy equipment in the lab. So it's very affordable to get going and it can be applied in almost any organism. So we're going to talk about editing human DNA, plant DNA, woolly mammoth DNA, for goodness sake. So the applications are extraordinary and, and move us into all facets of uh, medical and life sciences. So it's a very exciting time. What does it mean to program CRISPR and how is that done? Well, CRISPR is at heart a bacterial antiviral immune system. And so the work that has been done over the past decade has been to take this naturally occurring bacterial missile defense system and repurpose it, re-engineer it to target any kind of DNA. It could be human DNA, plant, animal, there's virtually no limit. And with CRISPR, the way that CRISPR works in nature is that bacteria store little segments of viral DNA, bad guy DNA, 
to store for a later time when they may encounter that virus again. The virus, of course, is bent on destroying the bacteria. And this viral sequence is sort of expressed, activated, and coupled with an enzyme, the genetic scissors, if you will, that can then go about specifically targeting and destroying or cutting that incoming viral DNA. So what researchers have done in the last decade is take that basic system but now use our own custom bits of genetic sequence to say, I want to target this gene or this sequence in this organism. And CRISPR allows us to do that. And we can either cut the DNA to knock out a particular gene or gene function, or we can make a cut and then use other DNA repair systems that are naturally occurring to then stitch in another piece of DNA to kind of make the sequence better, to repair a mutation, for example, that gives rise to a genetic disease. So these are all the kinds of experiments and strategies that are being used as we speak. You mentioned the ease of use. So what makes CRISPR easier to program than other genome editing techniques? Yeah, it's just sort of the way it's fallen out. There, there have been earlier gene editing technologies, perhaps the best known of which is called zinc finger editing, using a different system of genetic factors. But that just was a much harder system to program, to specify. And although it is still used, it's really the domain of one particular biotech company, a company called Sangamo in California. Whereas CRISPR, by contrast, has proven much easier to program because all you have to do is pretty much customize and lay out and type into your computer the specific sequence that you're looking to target. And then you can order these short fragments of genetic sequence, and then pretty much you're off to the races. And over the last 10 years, investigators have built up what we call the CRISPR toolbox, so that we now have a much larger number of enzymes that have slightly different properties. So we can use CRISPR for gene knockouts, but in another application, we're also using CRISPR systems as a diagnostic tool to, for example, produce simple, easy, affordable, rapid tests, diagnostic tests for COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. As you said, CRISPR is relatively easy to program. How is the CRISPR machinery then delivered into cells? Well, we can deliver it in a variety of different ways. A common way is using viruses. So we know that viruses, they live to attack us and attack all kinds of organisms. So if we kind of take a benign virus, like, for example, the adeno-associated virus, which is this tiny, small virus, we can sort of strip out the innards and put the CRISPR coding inside and use the virus to just naturally infect cells and deliver the CRISPR machinery so that it is sort of activated and expressed, not unlike the way that the RNA vaccines have been working in this COVID pandemic. There are non-viral systems as well, because viruses do have their downsides and We've got 20 or 30 years of experience in gene therapy using viruses to shuttle entire genes into patients to try to repair or replace the function of faulty genes that are giving rise to different genetic diseases. And there can be side effects. So we've changed the viruses that we're using, and we're still trying to make these viruses as safe as possible. But there's a variety of other non-viral systems using sort of lipid vesicles that sort of naturally can morph into a cell 
well. Working on this is going to be perhaps one of the biggest challenges in the next decade. We've pretty much got the CRISPR editing sorted out, delivering CRISPR to all the cells in the human body or the tissues or organs that are particularly affected without it running rampant in the rest of the body. For medical purposes, that's going to be one of the big challenges to really perfect in the coming years. Okay. So molecular scissors, as you say, are delivered into my cells and programmed to cut up my DNA. Yeah. That sounds risky. What are the precision and safety issues and how quickly are they improving? Yeah, you don't want a you don't want a genetic scissors running rampant in your cells. That's a, that's a very good point. But that's where the genetic sequence that is coupled with the scissors is so important because this is providing the GPS signal to go and find the precise location in the human DNA or whatever organism you're, you're working with, so that the CRISPR-Cas enzyme construct will land only in that one place. And over the last five or 10 years, researchers have been able to make huge improvements to really precisely deliver CRISPR and reduce the level of so-called off-target effects to virtually nothing. I wouldn't say it's completely a, a non-factor, but remember, we are, our cells are constantly being bombarded by radiation from the sun or chemicals in the environment. Our DNA is constantly breaking and constantly being repaired as we speak today. So, so long as CRISPR isn't sort of adding to that background level of noise, then we should be okay. So CRISPR gene editing is one area of precision, but there are new tools, as I describe in, in the book, in particular a tool called base editing, which uses some elements of CRISPR, but looks as if it can deliver even more precise editing, literally just tweaking a single letter, an A, C, T, or G in our genetic code, again, programmed to target just one specific region of one specific gene, and to do so without even cutting the DNA. So a more, a subtle, more precise form of genome engineering. And the first results uh, in preclinical animal models are looking very, very promising in that technology as well. Right. So humans are a lot more complicated than bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> How surprising is it that CRISPR works in human cells? Yeah, it depends who you talk to. And there is a huge ongoing patent dispute in the biotech world that really hinges on this particular question. The Nobel Prize last year in chemistry was awarded to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for a collaboration that they struck in 2011 that bore fruit a year later when they published a landmark paper, an immortal paper, as one of my colleagues, Fyodor Urnov, says in science, the journal Science in the summer of 2012, defining and showing how CRISPR could be used to target and cut DNA in a programmable fashion, and left open the question whether it would work in human cells. And from that moment, that was like the sort of the start flag of the Grand Prix. The race was on to get this to work in human cells. The first demonstration that it worked in human cells was published six months later in two papers also in science from Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute and George Church and his group at Harvard Medical School. They would say that this was by no means obvious because human cells are, and the genetic component, the genome of human cells 
is millions of times bigger than a bacterial chromosome. So why should we just naively expect that CRISPR, a bacterial system that's evolved over hundreds of millions of years to purely work in bacteria and other microbes, why should we automatically assume that that would work in human cells? Dowder and Charpentier would argue, well, it's, but at the end of the day, it's all DNA. And it doesn't really matter whether we're targeting bacterial DNA or plant DNA or human DNA. As long as we can deliver the system into the nucleus of human cells, CRISPR should eventually, it'll take longer, but it should eventually find its target sequence and go to work and perform the editing. So we know that it does work in human cells. The patent dispute will eventually be resolved one way or the other, and life will go on. The use of CRISPR in human cells was pioneered in 2012, as you've just told us. And now in 2021, it's being used in high school biology classrooms. How did that happen so fast? I think once those original papers in 2012 and 2013, once the implications of them really sank into the scientific community, researchers, they are full of ideas in their heads and are just waiting for the right tools to come along that they can then go about putting those ideas into action. And CRISPR provided this ability to change and to customize DNA sequences. So whether you're trying to treat a genetic disease or build a new animal model or or study some fundamental aspect of biology that's beyond the scope of our discussion today, or we want to resurrect the genome of some extinct species or make plants safer, more drought resistant or pest resistant, CRISPR, for the first time provided a easy to manage, easy to distribute, affordable, powerful, flexible, precision editing tool. And the the rest of the world just went nuts. The number of papers on CRISPR just started going up at an exponential rate. Biotech companies were formed within a few years. Several of them have now gone public. A whole new wave of biotech companies using CRISPR in one fashion or another is is coming online as we speak. And of course, the Nobel Prize was just really the sort of icing on the cake because Downer, Charpentier, Zhang, and other peers had won basically every scientific prize and accolade you can think of. The Nobel Nobel was the, the sort of the last remaining big prize to be given out, and the Nobel Committee gave it out last year. And yet, it's easy enough to do that high school students can do it. Yeah, I th- well, yeah, not maybe not every high school student, but certainly there are classrooms across the United States and abroad that are using CRISPR. What better way? to engage young scientists and sort of inspire them and excite them to say, you know, here with a, in a couple of days, you can be changing the genetic code of an organism to study basic research or for, for some other application. That's a pretty exciting tool to offer them. Jennifer Doudna, the Nobel Prize winner you cited a moment ago, You quote her in your book saying that human genome editing is relatively easy to do, but incredibly hard to do well. Is that ease of use both a feature and a flaw of CRISPR? Yeah, you could say that. I think the ease of use as as we've already said, is is one of the big reasons why CRISPR has become almost a household word. 
Many books have now been published on the subject, including Walter Isaacson's latest bestseller, The Codebreaker. This has really crossed into the mainstream. But there are downsides of putting a tool in people's hands that is so easy to use. And I think we, we may talk a bit later uh, about one scientist in particular, He Jiankui, who rather arrogantly, I think, decided that he could deploy CRISPR to edit a gene in a human embryo and thereby cross a huge ethical red line and medical red line. So there are still challenges, as you said earlier, about making sure that CRISPR can be used safely. The last thing we want is to start, for example, a clinical trial and be kind of glibly or aggressively applying CRISPR to patients and then find months or years later that the CRISPR has caused an unwanted side effect. I mean, that would be devastating, not only for the patients, but really for this new explosive era of genome editing. So I think all the researchers, clinicians, physicians, and their industry partners, they're excited, but they're being cautious as well and taking all the appropriate safety steps to ensure that we use this incredible power to change the genetic code. We use it responsibly and as safely as we possibly can. Right. So, as seen with He Zhangkui, the Chinese biophysics researcher who arranged for a woman to give birth to genetically edited twin baby girls and the CRISPR babies debacle, both incidents served as early evidence that not everyone is going to wait until this technology has been proven to be safe before experimenting with it. Yeah. How concerned should we be with CRISPR being readily available to amateur scientists and potentially even rogue scientists? Yeah, I think I would put these in two probably important to put these in two separate categories. There are a group of people, amateur scientists, as you say, who've been advocating the use of CRISPR in an almost a, a DIY fashion, whether on themselves or their pets. I don't spend a lot of time talking about this in my book, but you can find documentaries and things if you want to follow these pursuits. The rogue scientist question was much more interesting to me because what He Jiankui, I'll call him JK for short, what JK, this uh, young Chinese scientist who had trained in the United States and then uh, returned to China with a PhD and a year of postdoctoral training under his belt from Stanford, he decided after a few years building a successful DNA sequencing company in China that he would secretly launch this audacious attempt to uh, perform gene editing in a human embryo with the purpose of giving Chinese couples at risk of HIV or where one partner had HIV to give them biological children who were HIV resistant by editing or knocking out one specific gene called CCR5. He Jiankui was a physicist by training. He picked up genetics during his PhD at Rice University in, in Texas, and then a year at Stanford with Steve Quake, a very famous uh, biophysicist, an esteemed scientist in America, and then went off and started to do these gene editing experiments. Any rational scientist or colleague would likely have told him, you shouldn't be doing this for ethical reasons, but the technology is not yet proven to be safe to start messing, literally messing with human lives. 
And the results were sad because when he announced these results at a standing room only conference in Hong Kong in November 2018, I managed to get a front row seat for that extraordinary appearance of his. We could see that the editing he performed was was really messy. It was noisy. It wasn't. He wasn't able to mimic the naturally occurring deletion in this gene that we see in a minority of of humans who are alive today that we know does confer HIV resistance. JK is now languishing. He's halfway through a three-year prison sentence because the international community, almost to a, a man and a woman, rose up and condemned this experiment. And I think the bigger tragedy is we just don't know yet how these twin baby girls named Lulu and Nana are faring. He announced their names, but he was immediately put under house arrest after this news broke before his sentencing. And I don't believe the Chinese authorities have revealed anything about the whereabouts or identities of these girls. One obviously hopes that they are receiving good medical attention and that they are okay. But I think there are a lot of scientists and and doctors over here who would, for the best of reasons, would would like to be able to study them and make sure that we all as a scientific and medical community can learn from these experiments of nature that JK performed. Right. So you note in your book that while He Kui was under house arrest, that a U.S. clinic reached out to him and asked for guidance on offering genome editing services to their customers. What would your message be to the proprietors of that clinic? Yeah, the clinic was actually in Dubai, if I'm not mistaken. But it was shocking that less than a week after he revealed the news about these gene-edited twins, these CRISPR babies, that a, a clinic in the Middle East would approach JK and ask if he could lend his services or provide teaching materials or something so, so that they could potentially perform, the suggestion is that they wanted to perform some sort of similar service for, for private clients. There was also a Russian doctor named Denis Rebrikov, a quite established geneticist, who spoke very openly six months after the JK affair of wanting to do similar experiments, but this time to help deaf couples have hearing-enabled children. There's a genetic form of deafness quite common in parts of Russia. He was recruiting couples who had inherited two copies of this particular deafness mutation, so could not use IVF or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to select for a hearing-enabled child, gene editing would be their only way of going about it. And for a moment, as I talk about in the book, it looked like he was going to go ahead and perform those, uh, start those trials until the the Russian authorities, uh, I think, almost had a change of heart and and sort of uh, clamped down. My message to anybody contemplating this is stop. The technology is not ready. There have been several reports uh, since uh, JK was incarcerated from leading groups who've been studying human embryos and human embryo development that in conclusion say we don't completely understand and have our hands on how CRISPR works in human embryos. It may well be that the way that DNA is repaired in a single cell is different than the way that we go about repairing breaks in our DNA after we're born and and as we're adults. So until the bare minimum, until scientists can collectively say, we've sorted this out, we can, in principle, in theory, 
produce, uh, perform CRISPR experiments and safely target a specific gene and rid an embryo of a specific, potentially fatal mutation, we shouldn't even be beginning to have this conversation. Last thing I'll say on this subject is that towards the end of last year, about nine months ago, a major report was published from the National Academies of Sciences, a prestigious US organization in consultation with the UK's Royal Society, another prestigious organization. And they laid out some ground rules after a year of research and taking evidence from various experts that said, we're not suggesting that genome editing, germline editing in human embryos should be banned. And the reason this is controversial, of course, is because a genetic edit made in a human embryo populates every cell of that individual as they develop and after they're born. So that edit is then becomes part of the gene pool should that person reproduce. That, that gene edit, whatever it is, could be passed down to future children, future generations. So this is not just about trying CRISPR in a single patient and seeing if it works or not. This is about potentially making a permanent change or alteration in the human gene pool. And this is fun fodder for science fiction aficionados who then can begin to extrapolate and then think about this is the beginning of the separation of the human species into, you know, haves and have nots and those who are genetically enhanced and those who are who are left unmodified. But the report that I mentioned before I digressed basically said we would potentially condone the use of genome editing in human embryos for very rare cases where both members of a couple have a serious genetic disease. Deafness was not considered sufficiently serious, but a serious genetic disease like sickle cell disease or something truly life-threatening where they had no other means of selecting for a healthy biological child. In that case, perhaps down the road, once all the safety concerns are sorted out and once the particular country gives approval by whatever means, then maybe such experiments could be tried again. But that's a long way down the road, I think. Yes, absolutely. I, I really thought parts of your book read like science fiction. And I had to occasionally remind myself that this is reality that I'm reading about. So CRISPR babies are an ethical minefield, but what about CRISPR grown-ups? Should we, should consenting adults be allowed to enhance genetic code once that is safely able to be done? I think we're a long way from that. Others would disagree. So I think in, with all of this discussion, as we've just touched on about JK and the uh, scandal over the experiments that he did in, in China, Remember, that was to make permanent edits in human beings. By contrast, everything else that people are trying, including the success that we've seen reported lately in clinical trials for sickle cell disease and genetic forms of blindness and so on, that's so-called somatic gene editing. That's just treating adults to correct genetic diseases, sickle cell disease, blindness, liver diseases, certain forms of cancer. So the list of diseases that scientists and investigators are using CRISPR to go after and potentially treat and hopefully cure is growing week by week. So the vast majority of CRISPR applications are all for the good, and we're very excited about those. Enhancing using CRISPR potentially to change eye color 
or make ourselves fitter or stronger or more muscular. Most would agree that this is really ethically dubious, possibly unsafe, and risks stigmatizing those who don't have access to these technologies. So, I, I mean, I think this is a debate that will continue. Some people may say, well, what, what about if we could engineer, let me give an example where I think this, this, there may be some more middle ground. What if we could figure out a way, a gene, for example, or a gene variant that provided full immunity against the coronavirus. So obviously we all recognize the traumatic effect and the serious loss of life over the last 18 months from, from COVID-19. What if there was a natural genetic inoculation that we could have? Would that be something that we might want to contemplate? So yeah, I think that's a discussion we have to have and how that would be rolled out remains to be seen. Obviously, gene therapies are great, but they are very expensive. And the companies that develop these things must get return on their investment or they're not going to stay in business. There's still a lot of sticker shock when a new gene therapy drug is launched and the price tag is $2 million or something. So would you put the price of a life for $2 million? I think many families would, even if they can't, literally cannot afford it. How CRISPR therapies are going to be priced remains to be seen. CRISPR itself is not an expensive technology, but often in treating patients with sickle cell disease, for example, the uh, the transfusions and the chemotherapy and all the other things that go along with it do make it to be a very expensive procedure. So uh, the equity of CRISPR, even though it's being used by researchers around the world, it's like with other forms of vaccine technology and other state-of-the-art drugs, it seems ensuring that the these therapies and life-saving cures are distributed equitably and accessed equally remains a, a very a very difficult challenge. So potentially in the future, CRISPR could inoculate us against COVID-style pandemics. But you also note in your book Bill Gates's concern that CRISPR could be used to weaponize a man-made flu pandemic. To what degree is there a risk that CRISPR winds up doing more harm than good? It's not a risk that I'm particularly concerned of. The SARS coronavirus 2 is almost certainly a naturally occurring variant or set of variants, and that's wreaked absolute havoc. Nobody needed to CRISPR a coronavirus in order for the latest pandemic to uh, to hit the world. That said, Bill Gates and the US Defense Department in recent years have raised some warning flags that CRISPR, by virtue of its ease of use, could be used to take microorganisms and maybe weaponize them in in some way. You don't need CRISPR. There's many other, it's really a bigger question than just CRISPR. The whole, whole new set of tools in a field called synthetic biology allows us to customize gene sequences. So there is always that risk, but I think there are plenty of sufficiently damaging and dangerous uh, naturally occurring organisms that I don't lose sleep over somebody in their basement or, or biohazard lab trying to engineer a different flu. And if you did, you know, you'd have the problem that, as we've seen with the pandemic, I mean, how do you, how do you quarantine the release of a virus to just target one population or another? So I, I think that's a bit of a red herring. How predictable is the future of CRISPR and genome editing? Probably not very. One of the things I'm excited is a, is a lapsed 
scientist. It's kind of you to call me a scientist in your introduction, but uh, is the new generation of CRISPR-based tools. So I touched on base editing earlier. That is showing great promise in treating a variety of genetic diseases. And base editing hadn't even been conceived when the pivotal CRISPR experiments were done a decade ago. So this is a five-year-old technology. It's already given rise to a publicly traded company called Beam Therapeutics. And researchers at Beam and in the academic labs that launched Beam uh, are producing really exciting results in sickle cell disease, as well as uh, in treating mouse models of a very sad uh, genetic disorder called progeria, which is a sort of an advanced form of rapid aging. A very rare disease, but researchers have pretty much shown that they can cure mice, a mouse model of progeria, using base editing, just making a very, the most subtle of DNA changes to reverse the biology. So that's exciting. And then we're seeing more and more applications, CRISPR, for example, being used to develop new diagnostic tests for COVID. And I think that will be very important, perhaps not making a dent in detecting COVID-19, but in future pandemics, whether driven by a coronavirus or flu virus or some other virus, I think we're going to be really relying increasingly on CRISPR for uh, that rapid testing that was such a, a pain point in the early months of the pandemic. In your book, you cite a number of science fiction sounding applications for CRISPR or potential applications. For example, editing human genomes to provide vaccination against cancer. And I'm wondering if you think CRISPR has caused scientists to think bigger than they used to. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case because we can now use CRISPR to interrogate the entire genome for many kinds of experiments. You can use CRISPR to systematically analyze or knock out one gene after another to study the effect or the particular biochemical pathways in different organisms in health and disease, to look for drug targets, to confirm drug targets. And as I said earlier, I think it's provided one of these rare tools You don't need a million dollars to buy the latest high-end DNA sequencer. These are affordable tools that really let scientists let loose with their imagination and allows them to design experiments that they could barely contemplate a decade ago. And that's so that's why there's been so much interest. That's why it's already been fated with the Nobel Prize and every other science prize. And that's why people like me were drawn to write books about it. What are your most ambitious hopes for CRISPR? For me, as somebody who trained as a geneticist and wanted during the time I was in the lab back in London and then in Boston in the 1980s, I was interested in the genetics of human disease, identifying the genes that cause those diseases, and ultimately curing those diseases, diseases like muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis. And In order to cure those diseases, obviously, you've got to identify the gene and understand the root cause of the disease and fully understand the biology of what's going wrong in the human body. But the idea that we might one day be able to go in with a genetic scissors and replace or tweak or substitute the broken DNA, fix the the one letter of the three billion letters of our genetic code that is causing such 
profound damage and distress in these patients. That really was science fiction. I, I don't think anybody was talking about that in the 1980s. The idea of gene therapy simply meant take the full healthy copy of the gene that is mutated in muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease and see if we can just add that en masse to the relative cell types, the muscle or lung or neurons, and hope that that could produce a, a fix for the, for the disease. So that's what drew me to CRISPR and got me excited because this was a technology, this is a technology that really is giving hope to patients. And so the best known example at the moment, it's still very early days for CRISPR, but the best known example at the moment is a trial that's ongoing in which a patient, the first patient is a, an African-American woman from Mississippi named Victoria Gray, who has essentially been cured of sickle cell disease, a disease that she's battled and, and fought uh, all her life. But she's taken one of these experimental uh, CRISPR therapies. Her blood cells now have been genetically uh, fixed such that a dormant gene that we all have in our bodies that makes a kind of fetal hemoglobin, it's usually shut down shortly after birth. It's been reawakened in Victoria and in other patients in this trial, and the results have been nothing short of spectacular. And so that for me is, I don't need to you know, go think about anything more fanciful than being able to cure a disease that has plagued human beings for centuries. And we've known about, we've known the root cause of sickle cell disease for about 70 years, but not been able to do anything about it. That's just magical for me. Given all that, in a few decades' time, where do you think CRISPR will rank in the pantheon of scientific discovery? Well, it already ranks pretty high, doesn't it? Nobel Prize, eight years after the uh, seminal paper from the team of Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier. And as I've just alluded, that, that Nobel Prize was, for the, the, was in chemistry. It was for developing the basics, the basic tools, the basic framework for this gene editing technology. I believe that maybe 10 years from now, we could well see another Nobel Prize in medicine this time for the use of CRISPR or CRISPR-related gene editing technologies for the treatment of diseases. Because I think by 10 years from now, we will have the results of trials for sickle cell disease and probably dozens of other genetic diseases. And I'm not saying they're all going to work. I'm not saying that CRISPR is necessarily going to be the best method for tackling these diseases. But I'm confident and optimistic that in most cases, CRISPR will provide really powerful and meaningful results for these patients. And it could well extend beyond just rare genetic diseases. You may think, well, I don't have cystic fibrosis in my family or muscular dystrophy or some rare liver genetic disease or sickle cell disease. But well, you may have heart disease or cancer in your family and CRISPR will potentially be used to address much more common diseases as well. Again, by just tweaking a gene here or a gene there that we know can impact the biology of those diseases. So it's not about just about prizes. I know there's a lot of uh, hot air about famous prizes, and that's not the only metric by which CRISPR will rank. But the other thing I would say is, while I'm optimistic and indeed believe that CRISPR will go on from strength to strength, CRISPR 
began in the most unlikely circumstances. A bunch of microbiologists in Europe studying a, a, an obscure set of sequences in bacteria that really weren't attracting any other attention from any other quarter of the globe or any other domain of the science field. And yet here we are, less than 20 years later. So who knows? The beauty of science is one never knows what the next CRISPR-like discovery will be. So it's possible that in 10 or 20 years, CRISPR may start to fade slightly just because something even bigger and better and shinier has come along. But I think we're going to be talking about CRISPR for a long time. I think that's an excellent note to end on. But I have to ask my last and most important question, which is, when will I be able to book my safari to see the woolly mammoths? Towards the end of the book, I talk about this fascinating project led by George Church at Harvard Medical School, which is this uh, attempt to quote-unquote resurrect or de-extinctify woolly mammoths. So we have beautiful frozen specimens of uh, woolly mammoths from the, the frozen tundra of northeastern Siberia and the Arctic Circle, as you say. So we know the woolly mammoth genome. We know also the genome of most closest neighbors, the Asian elephant. So a little bit like uh, we saw in Michael Crichton's book, Jurassic Park, we can potentially identify those genes, a handful of genes that could cosmetically and in other ways change an Asian elephant to something that more closely resembles a woolly mammoth. Um, not for recreational purposes, but this has an ecological significance potentially to uh, keep the frozen tundra packed down so that we don't, with global warming, see an, an absolutely explosive release of methane that's currently trapped underground into the atmosphere. So that's the bigger goal of this project Woolly Mammoth. But I should say there are many other scientists, including some very esteemed scientists like Beth Shapiro, who are pretty supportive in a way, but also pretty skeptical that this is going to lead to anything. So I wouldn't book your ticket just yet. And you're going to have a big mosquito problem to deal with if you go there as well. So, uh, so pack carefully. Well, CRISPR can take care of the mosquitoes as well, though, can it? <laughs> well, that, well, yeah, that, that's, another, that's another line of inquiry, shall we say, yes. Thanks for a thought-provoking discussion, Kevin. CRISPR is a game changer, and if you'd like to learn more about it, check out the book on Amazon. That's Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross-Border Solutions. This podcast was executive produced by Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom. Byron Gilliam wrote the script. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You don't have to be a genius to see why that makes sense. We'll be back next week with more stories about brilliant leaders and innovators whose game-changing contributions are real-life proof that genius always beats fear. Fear.